Okay, so this is a reading from John 18, 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out to his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Sorry, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who portrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying may be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave to me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Go ahead and lead us in prayer, bro. Lord, we ask that as we come to a place of contemplation on your word and hearing your voice, receiving Lord that we come with hearts and minds that are cleared we release ourselves of ourselves Lord and um, it's just a place of almost being like a sponge and really just taking in your word that your word breathes into our lives Lord we pray that you are our core focus for this period of time pray that we can just let everything go and just focus on you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you, Abraham. Good afternoon, everyone. We obviously enter a very uh, heavy portion of text from this through the remainder of this chapter and in the, in the, the next as well. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final authority. In chapter 14, and if you have your Bible, slip there for a moment. In chapter 14, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one right to you. That will help. And open them up, please. Go to chapter 14 for a moment. John chapter 14. (coughs) 
In chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says, Arise, let us be going. Jesus has been in the upper room. It is there that they had Pesach, Passover, where the lamb is slaughtered because there is no deliverance without death. And the celebration of something that took place 1,400 years before when God systematically took down all of the worshipped gods, if you will, lowercase g, of Egypt and brought his people out of the land of slavery and out of the hand of bondage. If you look at chapter 18, verse 1, and flip there, you'll see it say that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. Which means from 1431 to 18.1 is the trip in between the upper room and the garden. Here's a quick topography for you just to help us get a little bit of an understanding. Hold three fingers up. That's not, a, that's not a curse thing, right? As long as it's three, we're good. I want to make sure of that, right? Now, if you were to look at the mountains, there are roughly five identified ranges in Jerusalem, although the whole thing is one hill. In between them are valleys. In the center are three of these mountains. The first of those mountains, by the way, Ophel, and from Ophel, Moriach, or Moriah, and then at the top of it, Mount Scopus, where Mount Scopus University is, for instance. That sort of runs this way. Running this one, which is, now, which is your east, is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a mountain range. It is not a single mountain. It is a row of mountains. Does that make sense? Over here is Mount Zion or Mount Zion. Now, what you have is valleys. You have a major valley here. You have a major valley here and a little one in between. Now, I remind you, these are our three. The Temple Mount sits right here today, by the way. The Temple sat in this general vicinity as well. So you have that here. The valley on this side of it, your western side of it, is called the Valley of Hinnom. Hinnom, by the way, means hell. It is where Judas hung himself. The valley on the right-hand side is the Valley of Kidron, which is what we see here, the brook Kidron. It's only a brook, by the way, during this time. Most of the time, it's simply a valley. I'll talk about that. In between is the Valley of the Cheesemakers. It's a much smaller valley, and it actually helps separate parts of the city. So think of it this way. You, what you have is a chunk of land with three kind of mountain ranges that kind of sit here. And then you have these two major valleys that surround it. On this side will be where Judas hangs himself, and on this side is the valley, Kidron. Now, you don't have to remember that, but it's important to note that the major city sits in between. Jerusalem sits in between those two valleys. Now, in chapter 14, Jesus says, let's get going. He knows what's ahead of him. Although I would hesitate to say about one specific thing, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. In chapters 15 through 17, then, in route, in route to that garden, Jesus shares that he's leaving, but not to freak out. It's preparation for their permanent move, ours too, as he says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, that, but when I'm done, I will receive you unto myself, I'll come receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will maybe also, which becomes the end of his prayer, by the way, at this as well. And then he says, but don't worry, I'm leaving the Holy Spirit to finish the job in you that I've done in front of you, before you. And then he prays for clarity so that we would understand what eternal life really is and who Jesus really is. That he prayed for our safety from the temptations and the lies and the accusations of 
the enemy. He prayed for us in regards to unity and ultimately ends with this desire for intimacy, which, by the way, he's praying for us as well, which is, of course, the whole point of him going to prepare a place for us in the first place. Now he's now entering the garden and he has now been taking us this whole time to the place of his arrest and betrayal and the place of our greatest Christian failure up to this point or our greatest failure as followers up to this point. Now, Jesus has left this area, the, the Jerusalem proper, and he has to drop down now 600 feet to head down into the valley Kidron and then rise up the other side. Now, the reason it is called Kidron, Kidron means dark, is because of this particular festival every year. You see, again, it's traditionally a very dry valley. However, things have changed because of this particular festival, Josephus, who, by the way, it's not scripture, but he's a historian of the day, says that during Passover, 200,000 lambs, roughly, were, were um, slaughtered each year. And so the Romans took this pipeline, they had developed sort of this irrigation system that drove, that was over 20 miles long, that went into the temple precinct to wash away all of that blood, which made then that valley on the east side your sewer system. It washed all of that blood. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those places like a butcher where they've actually thrown out the old meat and how that smells afterwards. But that's because of the blood, which God said, by the way, that the life is in the blood. Now, that blood is flowing. Now, here's the wild part about this. The first thing that Jesus was called by John the Baptist is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, it's important to note it's the one thing he's called basically more than anything else in the book of Revelation. And yet, in all of that, the real Lamb of God is walking through this torrent of blood of the symbolic lambs that are supposed to testify of him, yet they're not seeing it happen while it's happening. Jesus is staining his robe with the blood of lambs that are supposed to point to the lamb that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, where God introduces the word love. He introduces the word worship in the same event. When it says that the boy and I will go yonder, which tells me they were from Alabama, and we will go worship up on this hill. It's a three-day journey, and it is the place where a man is going to sacrifice his son. Now, forgive me for the rapid trail, but it's imperative to get to this, because who in their right mind would think that a God is a good God if you're going to have to kill your son? It is important to note this, and I'm going to say things rather quickly with the idea of challenging you to go on hot pursuit. Again, please don't just believe me. That in the Middle East to this day, there are basically four basic types of gods. There are gods of power, there are gods of provision, there are gods of production, and there are gods of pleasure. And every god of pleasure was a god that you sacrificed your firstborn to. That was Rimon, that was Molech, that was Milchon. It didn't matter whether you were a Syrophoenician or Canaanite or wherever. Everyone had their own God of pleasure. And it's strange to think that they all had the same cover charge. And that was that you set your kid, you killed your firstborn child. Now, why is that important for Abraham? In Abraham's case, what Joshua tells us in Joshua 24 is that Abraham was raised in an idol-worshipping home. He was not raised in a godly home. Terah was a, worship, uh, was a worshiper of many different things. And therefore, those things are in his house. It's challenging to look. When you look at Abraham, he, do you know he builds four altars? You ever wonder why he builds four? 
Because the journey of Abraham is the journey of discovery, of recognizing that the real living God is the God of all those things. But the problem is the word pleasure, we get all weirded. Because we assume that pleasure must be something sensual to somewhere when the world sort of claims certain words. But if you've ever had a good meal, you've had pleasure. And chances are it didn't involve anything perverted. God gave you eyes and he created color and he gave you ears and he created song. God is a God of pleasure. Just the enemy has taken that and tarnished it in such horrible ways that we hear the word and we almost feel uncomfortable. Now the reason I say that is back in Genesis 22, the, the boy was old enough to carry the wood. The boy is old enough to kind of figure this out and he looks at his dad and he says, if we're going to worship, we have everything but the most important thing. He says, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Might I say as a quote-unquote worship leader, although the term never appears in scripture, but as a worship leader, that is huge to me because I've seen places where it's all about the fire. Oh, we've got to have the fire. And there are places where it's like, we all got to have the stuff. But where is the sacrifice? Thus, a song like I Say Yes is so fundamental. You'll watch every week we tend to end up with something where it's an issue of surrender. That's where it has to end up. And that's why. Everything has a purpose in this. And he looks and he goes, where's the sacrifice? And the father, Abraham, turns to his son, thinking he's going to sacrifice his son because he's reconciling that the God he's following as a God of pleasure as well. And he says, God will provide the seh, is the word in the Hebrew. Seh. Can you try that word? Seh. Seh means lamb. So they go on up. The boy is bound. He's put on there. And just before the father is able to slay his son, he has stopped. God's going to let you know real worship doesn't take place with the sacrifice of your own son. God's going to sacrifice his for you. But then I start looking for the seh. And we read, behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket. Ayil is the word, by the way, in the Hebrew. Seh, ayil. Do they sound remotely the same to you? I hope not, because they're not the same word. Now, anyone who has, by the way, you're probably aware the word question comes from the word quest. And that's the idea. You want to find an answer. Remember when Jesus would say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and figure this one out. So you look and you go, well, wait a minute. He said God would provide himself a sacrifice. He would provide himself a lamb, a seh. Where is that lamb? And you do not find another one until Exodus chapter 12. When God says, I want you to take a lamb, and that a lamb becomes the lamb, and that lamb begins to be your lamb, and that lamb is slaughtered so that you could go free from your slavery. Interesting, the next time after that, that seh will appear again as the sin sacrifice in Leviticus. It's beautiful how God rides that whole thing. So when he's called the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world in in John chapter 1, I get the idea we can follow that line all the way from the book of Genesis straight through. God has been preparing that, by the way, for over 2,000 years now. 3,000 years. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has made his way into the book of Kidron. The Lamb of God stepping over this flow of blood of these symbolic lambs because of the perfect lamb that God himself is going to provide himself to be as the sacrifice. And as he enters the garden, by the way, now, and by the way, that irrigation goes as many as 35 miles away from Rome or from, the, from Jerusalem to go and wash away this blood. And it's interesting now. Judas, who portrayed him, also knew the place, verse 2, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, please don't miss this. 
Everything that God has done in Jesus, He has done to make Jesus approachable. And I'm going to unfortunately shoot away one of the really fantastical things that people often try to develop in this text because I want to be true to the text. I want to be faithful to Scripture. And sometimes we can kind of make it something super fantastical and it's, we can make it something like some of the movies that's come out lately where it's like we really are in love with the drama of it but we don't take the truth first. But this we know. Jesus has been going to this garden for a while and he's been going there with his disciples which has included Judas. And he has gone there regularly. And all we knew was it was the one place we might be able to find. However, what we didn't see is that Jesus was setting us up so that he could be at a place where Judas could find him. God has made himself approachable. Jesus was born to a family of questionable repute. Jesus was born in an insignificant town. Jesus wasn't good looking Isaiah said he had no stately form or majesty that we would be drawn to him or attracted to him. So he didn't look like the surfer Jesus unless you think the surfer Jesus that they paint is ugly. The bottom line is he wasn't buff. He wasn't gorgeous. He probably, if he had to go to prom at all, he probably went with one of his sisters. We know that he had at least two. You know, it was one of those kind of things. And why? I'm just going to be honest. Because beautiful people are intimidating and they're hard to approach. And if God came to earth to be with man, why would he make it harder on man to get to him? So he was born of a poor family because rich people are intimidating. He was born ugly because, and here's the weird part, he was the one person who could actually pick his shell. Think that through. He was the one person, I mean, if you could pick your shell, would you go, I want something ugly and not so well built? And I look around and I think, if you had the choice, none of you got that anyways. And the point is, is that we would want something that would people would look and go, "Whoa, you looking good," you know. But in that, some people would be wouldn't come near you because of that. But God came to be with people, and He's going to do that even in this text, where He's going to make Himself approachable to even His accuser and His arresting party. But I'd like you to realize something here, because where Jesus has taken us in this text points us to this beautiful dichotomy, and don't miss this. He takes us all the way back to the first human being that's ever walked the planet. You see, our first human being was a man named Adam. Adam means red or man. It all depends on how you want to read it. And that man took a temptation from the enemy, and he took the temptation in the garden, and because he took the temptation in the garden, he was cast into the wilderness. And as he was cast into the wilderness, I challenge you to realize in that what happened is God came walking in the cool of the garden and Adam hid himself. Remember that? And God said, Adam, where are you? It isn't that God didn't know. Adam didn't realize where he was. You ever have times where God pulls you aside and goes, do you even realize what you're doing right now? Do you even realize where you are? But Adam never actually takes a, he never mans up to the, to the sin. He even blames God for it. And so he's cast out of the wilderness. And do you remember what God put there to guard them from re-entering in a sinful state into the garden? He put a flaming sword. I'd like you to remember that. I'd also like you to remember the fact that the word, the garden was called the garden of what? Do you remember? Eden. The word Eden or Chaden means pleasure. For what it's worth. Matter of fact, we get the word hedonistic from it. See how the world likes to take our things. Don't from a go, please don't share those words. Don't use those words because you'll alienate people. If you don't use them, somebody else will. Have you heard people talk about being evangelistic about sales out there these days? 
It's amazing. No matter what word you, oh, we don't use born again because people won't let, you know, they won't relate to it. Now there's born again alcoholics. What does that mean? I mean, it's amazing. Look at, stop giving up ground, please. And let's just be, you know, look at, I am redeemed and I'm bought by the blood of the Lamb and I am born again. I'm spirit filled and Jesus has redeemed me and there's a power in his name and I was bought at the cross and at the resurrection I was given new life and that ain't changing. Instead of giving up those words, how about we redeem them and bring them back to what they really mean? Now, that first Adam fell in the garden and was brought to the wilderness. He hid instead. And there was a flaming sword that was pulled out of its sheath so that it could keep you from going back in. Now, my second Adam, God in the flesh, that Romans tells us there is a second Adam, the second first, if you will. Jesus Himself, God the man in human flesh, takes us, where is His first greatest temptation? Do you remember? It was in the wilderness. He actually went to take us back. Do you realize it? He stood in the wilderness. He took all of the temptations of the enemy. And He came out and said, is that all you got? And He took us from there. And now He takes us to the other place of His greatest temptation. And He takes us from the wilderness back into the garden. Should it surprise us? God wants to get us back to that place where it was just us and Him. So there, Jesus has taken us into the garden. He is clearly in bad shape. And as he's in bad shape, by the way, Judas is on his way. It is important to note that Judas was never a Christian. So let's start blasting some goofy doctrine out of the wall right from the beginning. There are people that say, well, you're a Christian, and then you could cease being a Christian. And, and, and I don't want to argue semantics, but I will tell you, and they'll say they'll use Judas as their example. And John, the same writer here, the same book, chapter 12, verse 6. Go back there for a moment in your Bibles. Look at it with me. In John chapter 12, verse 6, we're speaking about Judas. And this is what we read. Go ahead and get there. Judas has just rebuked Mary for pouring forth that beautiful ointment on him. And in chapter 12, verse 6, it says, He said, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Judas's involvement always went to the highest bidder. He was always up for auction in his heart. And Jesus seemed to be the hottest thing going around. And because of that, Judas was more than happy to stick his card on the table because it allowed him to stick his hand in the purse. You know what I find interesting? Do you know the last time the word thief was used before John 12? Jesus was saying it. Because in John 10, 10, he says, the thief doesn't come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Isn't it interesting that the next time you read Thief, it's going to be about Judas, who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Judas, who betrayed in verse 2, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now, an awful lot takes place in between verses 2, well, really, that we don't have listed in the Gospel of John. For instance, where Jesus turns to three guys, including John, the writer of this book, and says, watch and pray, and they fall asleep instead. And he falls to his knees. 
He says, Father, if there is any other way, Daddy, Abba, if there is any other way, don't let this cup pass, please. I don't want to drink this cup, Dad. If there is any other way to redeem Marcia, if there is any other way to save Fanny, if there is any other way to adopt Richard, if there is any other way to cleanse Jaden, if there is any other way for somebody to make their way into heaven, then please don't let me drink this cup. Is that reasonable? Does anyone volunteer for torture in their right mind? Now let me ask you something, Christians. What do we say if we say Jesus is a way? Not the way, but a way. When the Son of God begs the Father in the garden on three occasions, if there is another way, please don't let me go, and the Father sends him anyways, how many of you here are fathers? Would you do that to your kid? If you're like, ha, 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 you know, let's just put it up on the buffet table. Let's make it an option. Jesus is like, if there's another way for them to get to you and be right with you, I don't want to go to the cross. But, if not, not my will, but yours be done. You guys look at an unbeliever that spouts off all kinds of nonsense, why should I be crazy about that? But a Christian that plays that game infuriates me. Because what we say is, there is a father who cares so little for his son, he'd let him be tortured unnecessarily. What kind of God is that? Well, we're afraid we'll make enemies. Oh, I would rather make enemies with someone telling him the truth than make enemies with a father who didn't spare his son. And Jesus there, as he prays, suffers what's called hemohydrosis or hematidrosis. Which means that the pressure and the intensity of the moment is so great that the capillaries under his skin start to explode into a sweat gland. By the way, it's in uh, Grey's Anatomy, and when they do, they use an example that was here in England. Did you know that? Three nuns huddled up, by the way, in the middle of England, the middle of London, during the blitz, afraid of the next bomb dropping, and the boiler explodes downstairs, and one of the gals experiences hemidrosis. She's so stressed. But don't miss this, because it's so much more. Where Jesus is, is a place called Gethsemane. Gut, by the way, like gaff, like Sam's, or like a glide of gaff, means press, to press, to squeeze, to push. Semnas, by the way, is olive. It is an olive press. And of course, where better to have an olive press than the Mount of Olives? Because then you don't have to carry your olives far. I would assume it's at the bottom of the hill because what person in the right mind has you carry all your olives up? Especially when there's two major towns right up there at the time. Bethany and Bethphage. It is there what you would do is you would take your olives and you would put them into baskets, wicker baskets, and you'd put them one upon another and another. And then this giant heavy stone 
so heavy that it can't, that the, the olives themselves can't support its weight, comes and crushes the olives till what's left is the blood of the olives comes out with the olive oil. That's the idea of it. And that first press olive oil is only used in anointing for the, for, um, the temple, for the uh, menorah, for the lampstand in them. In, in them. It's all it's used for. Then from there, they start to crush it and grind it. And as they crush it and grind it, it gets, each level gets used for something until ultimately the last is used for makeup and, and medicines, by the way, for ointments. To this day, you can get cold press, first press, second press, virgin, extra virgin, and so forth. And all of those things are basically what part of the process do you actually get the oil from. Obviously, the more virgin or the more initial press it is, the more expensive it is. But I'd like you to see the, the metaphor for what it is in front of us. There is a weight so great that it's crushing the olives to what's left is the blood and sweat of the olives falls out. And there in the garden, in the same place, the Son of God has the weight of your and my sin pressed upon him. And it crushes him. And he sweats like blood. And that's what Luke tells us, the doctor. Jesus has experienced all of that, so I don't know what you would be like. I mean, think about the most horribly emotional night you've ever had. Think about what you looked like at the end of that night. That's Jesus' condition as he comes out to his arresting party. Does he look threatening? Jesus has had a really rough night. And what's worse is it's not going to get any better. He comes out, he has his meltdown, and he sees his boy sleeping, of which one is John here. Verse 3. Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers, so the chief priests and Pharisees came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And my mind immediately goes to this concept of Frankenstein, because if you've ever read the book, you know, kind of at the end, they all kind of come with torches and lanterns and weapons. It's kind of that kind of concept. But there's two things that really stands out here. And again, I'll try to get a little bit quicker so we can get to the key point of this. But, but I want you to, I mean, I'm trying to develop this so that we kind of have a good basis for all of this. Understand that the term detachment here is the word spiras. Try the word spiras. No, it's Greek. Well, it comes from Greek word. So you can't just go spiras. So spiras. Spiras comes where we get the word spire from. Things that are coiled together. It is a tenth of a Roman cohort. And a Roman cohort is 6,000 men. A tenth then makes it how much? 600 men. Judas has come with 600 men to arrest Jesus. What do you have to tell people to get that many guys to arrest one fella? But we, let's be honest, he also has a ragtag group of about 12 other guys, 11 other guys, and they might be a little bit of trouble. But that's still 11 guys. Wait a minute. So that's 12 with Jesus included, and you're going to get 600 men. What kind of guy do you think you're going to arrest here? I mean, all I can think of is it's like you're arresting an Avenger at this point. Because, I mean, who else? But, but hey, let's face it, as close as Avengers go, this would probably be it, right? He raises the dead, but he's never done anything bad. It isn't like he's made anyone blind or ripped someone's arms off, all the things he could have done. But no, he's healed people, raised the dead. He's made the sick well. So imagine what would happen if you get that guy angry. Oh, yeah, he could make us all blind. He could rip our heads off. I mean, think of the things he could do. I mean, imagine the kind of hype you'd have to throw to this. So what you have is, which one of you, you want, you're dealing with sort of, in essence, the greatest supernatural giant you've ever heard about in your time, and you're going to go arrest him? Which one of you feels comfortable being the guy to step forward? 
So he comes with this large group of people, but they come with lanterns and torches. Why is that so important? Because it's Passover. Does anyone know the condition of the sky during a Passover? It's a full moon. It's the first full moon of the year for the Jewish calendar, and it's the third one for us. So it's about as bright as the night's going to get. But you never know when those gorilla disciples might pop out. Ah! I mean, you never know. So imagine going there, though you're 600 guys, 600 soldiers, by the way, sent by the chief priests and Pharisees who apparently have their own military. But hey, that it's not that weird if you've ever been to the Vatican. Anyways, with all of that said, so they show up and imagine they're kind of carrying their weapons and they're, and they're kind of running around waiting to see when they're going to get jumped. Meanwhile, Jesus is having a meltdown in the garden and he's praying for us. His disciples are sleeping. And see Jesus going, I can't have you guys falling asleep on me. Please understand my opinion. But Jesus is saying, you know what happens when you wake up. You are not in your senses. You're going to do something so stupid. Please, I need you to stay awake. Not for me. I need you to stay awake for you. Because this is going to be hard enough on me as is. Please don't make it any harder. Oh, and they're going to, of course. Verse 4. Therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. Knowing all things that would come upon him means knowing what all the torture he was going to receive. He knew he was going to go to the cross. He knew he was going to get whipped. He knew he was going to get abused by the king's game. All things we'll talk about in time. And yet in all of that, he notice it says that knowing that all these things would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? And here's my second Adam moment. And that first moment, the first Adam took us from the garden to the wilderness. The second Adam takes us from the wilderness to the garden. The first Adam fell and hid himself. The second Adam stepped forward. Did you notice that? He is making it easy. But I'd like you to realize, in order for Jesus to be arrested, he had to bring both Herod and Pilate into the same place. He had to hide out from the crowd that could have gone crazy trying to protect him. He had to set up a place that was easily findable from the people, but but easily findable for Judas. He had to keep his disciples from getting in the way. He had to hold back the angels from jumping in. Imagine them wanting to jump into this situation. I mean, one angel takes, on, takes down 85,000 people, 185,000 people. I don't think this is going to be a problem. 600 is nothing. He has to refrain from using any of his own power. He has to forbid any thought of retaliation or entitlement. All the things we are raised with here that we do naturally, he has to fight. And Jesus steps forward and says, who are you looking for? He has volunteered himself. Why? Because he is separating himself from the doofus disciples that he has at a moment that he knows that once they wake up, they're going to be dumb. So they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Notice the he is in italics, which means what he literally said is, ego me, I am and Judas, who betrayed them, also stood with them. Interesting, by the way, because in Matthew 26, he had given the clarity that he was going to identify the guy by kissing him, which, by the way, is a traditional embrace of a, excuse me, of a relative or a very close friend. And he kissed him. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 50, friend to Judas, friend, why have you come? In Luke twenty two forty eight, in his account, he says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And I just got to be honest to tell you, this is my take on it, but please consider this. Jesus does know all of the torture that's going to happen to him. 
He knows all of the abuse. He knows all of the whipping. He's all of that, and he's still volunteering for it anyways, because if that's what it took to get you, he'll do it. But I kind of get the idea there's one thing he didn't know. I don't know if he actually knew that he was going to get kissed by Judas. Because his response seems so in shock. Judas? Are you, are you actually kind of betraying me with a kiss? I mean, yeah, I knew you'd betray me. That's clear because it was clear in Psalm 49 you were going to clearly betray me. My closest friend has lifted up his heel against me. I get that. The one I shared my bread with. But I wonder if he just expected Judas to be like, that's your guy. But for Judas to be like, hey, greetings, Rabbi, and kissing him, come on, brother, big hug. I could see Jesus being like, really? You could be that cold that you would come that close to me and you could do all of this as if somehow I don't know what in the world you're doing when I already told you what you have to do too quickly and you're still going to do it this way? I mean, to let his own heart be broken like that from his own betrayer. The one, by the way, whose feet Jesus washed. But Judas is standing with the betrayers now. He's standing with the arresting party. Here's our verse, verse 6. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, very, very gifted teachers who I love and respect greatly tend to go to the same place with this verse. And that is that Jesus, I guess in a careless moment, because let's face it, he's being arrested, kind of says, I am, which of course is the name that God spoke to Moses all the way back in Exodus 3. And the very power of that name slays people in the spirit in front of them and they all fall over by the majesty of him saying, I am. The problem is Jesus has already said, I am over a hundred times, 103 times before this point. And even in, in John in chapter 8, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, same statement, nobody falls over. And there is two things I have to note. And then I'm going to point out at least what I have from the clarity of the text. The first is this. That these detachment of people have come before him, they've gotten very, very close to him, and they're asking him, I remind you, Jesus has come out, he has had a meltdown in the garden, he is looking in very, very bad shape. And here we are, gathered because we think some supernatural giant is going to come, and I don't know, who knows what's going to happen, but it's going to be crazy, and we're just hoping we don't die from the experience. And this guy comes out, and he's lowly and meek, because that's the way Jesus says he is, and he certainly is more than ever at this particular moment. And with that, they ask, who are you looking for? And he says, I am. But here's the, the issue of being slain in the Spirit. Pulling it from this, because, by the way, let me ask you, of all the people who fell back, were any of them a believer in Jesus? Were any of them Christians? No, they were the arresting party. They were the enemies of Jesus here. As a matter of fact, I challenge you to look throughout Scripture and find one place where God slays anyone that's not his enemy. Sounds like a dangerous term. Think about what slay means. Slay means, in the simplest sense, kills without mercy. I've been killed without mercy in the Spirit. Now, and I'm not trying to get rude, I'm just trying to be careful with text. 
So when someone's like, well, clearly we have it here. I'm like, well, let me ask you, who fell down here? People who were trying to arrest Jesus. But here's the second thing. I remember reading this and just wanting to know on my own. So the first place I went was to the Greek. And as I went to the Greek, the first thing you look at is whether it's active or passive. Do you remember that? The idea of active and passive is fairly simple. Active means you make it happen. Passive means it happens to you. If I throw something at Mark, I've actively made it happen. If Mark gets hit in the side of the head with whatever I threw at him, he has to do nothing. It happened to him. Does that make sense? When it happens to you, it's in response to something. But when you're the one who is actively doing it, you initiate the action. Does that make sense? The chances are, if Mark was walking down the street and he fell, we could say he was overcome by gravity and it was passive. It happened to him. Does that make sense? But if Mark were playing football for the moment and Bruno, I'm going to pick on him because he's not here at the moment, and Bruno decided he wanted to do a tackle and he kind of gets him into the ankle and Mark goes down, Mark is still responding to it, so it's passive for Mark. It happened to him. But as far as Bruno, Bruno was the one who actively made it happen. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I say that is when it says, now when he said I am, they drew back, and the word there is aparokamai, it is in the active tense. What does that tell you? They initiated the action. And they fell to the ground. By the way, the word there, pipto, which by the way is also in the active tense. Secondarist, active, indicative in both cases. What does that mean? They did it. They made it happen. Now it's beautiful and fantastic. It could be for the moment for Jesus to go, oh, who are you looking for? Him? I am! And they all fall over. And it's kind of cool for the moment. But remember the whole point of this is Jesus is making himself approachable by his arresting party. What if Jesus did do that? I remind you, they came to arrest a spiritual giant. If Jesus had flexed the supernatural at that moment, he might have gotten... Chances are they would have whipped out the biggest machine guns. They could, well, obviously they didn't have machine guns, but you get the idea. They would have whipped out whatever they had, and they would have started firing, and so Jesus might not have gotten hit. A lot of his disciples might have. Jesus knows flexing at this moment is a dangerous thing. Here's the idea. They're coming in there, and they're like, I think they're torches, right? And they're like with their shields and their weapons, and they're like, like this. And a guy emerges from the darkness. It's like, hey, what are you guys looking for? And they're like this close to him, and they're like, well, you know, obviously this guy's no threat. He's like covered in sweat, blood around him. He's obviously, his skin's all torn up, and he's just kind of, kind of coming out like he's a zombie. And they're like, who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth goes, oh, well, that's me. Now, wouldn't you freak out and get back? No, to fall back, you fell back into a battle array. You fell back into a position because you just got really, really close to a guy that's supposed to be the most dangerous person on the planet. Can you, can you consider that? And I, I think as I look at this, the point was not Jesus flexing his power. The point was how unthreatening our Almighty was before his arresters, that how close they could get to him without even knowing. And imagine, just like when Jesus is walking there in Capernaum, and the woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and meanwhile all these other people are walking by and, and not reaching out to Jesus at a moment like that. Or imagine what it would be like when Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi and all these people are bowing to chunks of stone while the real living God's walking among them and they don't even know it. Imagine on Easter when we gather together and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus while the majority is still trying to sober up from the hangover they had from the night before. They don't know. Who are you seeking? Oh, Jesus and Nazareth, that's me. 
So they drew back and they fell to the ground. They got so close to the one they were told was so dangerous. Didn't assume it was this guy. Then he said to him, well, whom are you seeking? He says it a second time. Now, why is he saying it a second time? Because the chances are they're in total battle array at this moment and they're not going to move forward. I mean, why would he have to ask a second time and then say, I am again? He's like, who are you guys looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, clearly. And he's like, no, I already told you it's me. Let those guys go. Because that's the whole point here. He has to distance himself from his disciples because Jesus had already said in the prayer in the last chapter, hey, I've lost none, except for the one that was already the son of perdition. And he says, verse 9, that it might be fulfilled what he spoke, which is of whom you've given me, I've lost none. Our last thing as we bring this to close. Simon Peter having a sword. Now, who gave Simon Peter a sword? It's like giving my kid a weapon. That just, you know, Captain Impetuous, the one guy most prone to die from athlete's mouth, because he stuck his feet in his mouth so many times by this point. Simon Peter, not listed as Peter here, not listed as Simon, but the guy in between. He was a bit of Simon, and he's going to be a bit of Peter, but this is a guy now who is an unstable Rocky. And he drew the sword, and he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right, his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. Malchus, by the way, it's just important to note, it's the only place you're going to actually read who did it, and it's the only place you're going to read who got it. John records both, but he happens to be right there while it's happening. Now, also, there tends to be a, uh, sort of an animosity between Peter and John, some form of kind of competition. So, you can imagine John gets the three other Gospels, and he reads them, and he goes, nobody mentioned it was, I'm going to mention it's Peter. I, people need to know it was Peter. By the way, because by the time he gets to the tomb thing, he's like, I got to the, it was me and, John, me and Peter, and we ran, and I got to the tomb first. And then when Peter showed up after me, and then the other one who showed up at the tomb first, John doesn't have a problem making sure that you know that Peter was kind of following by. Behind. So he's like, oh yeah, nobody told us. Well, you need to know. Peter, come off his ear, but let's just do this for a moment. Abraham, come here for a second. Let's just assume that like the vast majority of people, that Peter's right-handed. Let's just assume that for the moment. Because it's, for the, again, this is just kind of a consideration. And now, this, this is only an assumption. But okay, here you are, you're Malchus. Here's Peter. What's, what, the sword's on which hand? His right hand. Now, if the sword's in Peter's right hand, how does he cut off this guy's right ear? You ever thought that through? Now, Peter may have been good at filleting. He was a fisherman, but he was certainly no swordsman. The general motive of a sword, by the way, is take the pointy end and push it. That tends to work fairly well, but Peter tends to be more like, ay, ay, ay. That's kind of what he's doing. He's trying to cut off a guy's head. The only logical way that it seems that he could have cut off his ear is from behind. Because that wouldn't have been a problem at all. But imagine if you were Malchus for a moment. And you're like there trying to rest, and Peter just kind of flies out, trying to cut off the guy's head. Now, what if he had cut off the guy's head? Imagine Jesus would have to pick up the head, dust it off, stick it back on there, and go, come on, Peter. Imagine what that would have been like. Thank you, Abraham. It's just a consideration here that, that what happens is Peter's trying to defend God. Do you realize how dumb that is? Yeah, you're going to see him going, thanks, Peter. I feel so much safer now that you're here. Because you clearly don't even know how to use a sword. 
anyone know the last miracle Jesus does before he resurrects? It's this one. Luke exclusively tells me. He has to pick up the ear and stick it back on the guy's head. Actually, it just says he touched his ear and healed him. I don't even know how that works. Did he touch the ear and it just went, I don't know. It doesn't say. Then you go, hey, ear. You know, however it was, whatever the case is. Now, here's the question. Do you still arrest Jesus if he just put your ear back on your head? You're like, well, this will keep my hat on straight. You're under arrest. I mean, really? Do you do that at that moment? But what Jesus says to him is, put your sword back in its sheath, Peter. What he will tell us in the Gospel of Matthew is, which just makes sense since it focuses on him being king, is, don't you know I have 12 legions of angels I could call at any given moment? 12 legions of angels. Peter, if I really needed help, with all due respect, buddy, I'm not going to ask you. I've never seen you take down 85,000 Syrian soldiers. And I wonder if Jesus actually had to tell the boys up there, hey, you guys, hold it, hold it. This is supposed to happen. Because imagine if I were an angel, I'd be like, come on, let's just say, just say the word. You know, but imagine, and Jesus is like, Peter, put your sword away. Now listen, our first Adam took us from the Garden to the wilderness. Our second one takes us from the wilderness to the garden. The first one ran and hid. The second one presented himself. The first one put the sword out so we couldn't get back in. And Jesus just said, now put it back in its sheath. That's the way that works. Now with that, he says, shall I not drink the cup in which my father has given me? I've just begged dad three different times in the garden. That's what my meltdown was about. And clearly dad says, this is the drink that I have to drink. So this is how we close this. Because today is communion. There can't be a better day for this. And I'd like you to consider this. Remember when James and John actually had mom ask Jesus, Hey, you know, when you enter your glory, can my sons be at your right and left hand? Which John makes careful note that, by the way, he was at the cross watching Jesus between people who were at his right and left hand going, Oh, thanks to that. He said no to that. But Jesus turns and says, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink? And of course they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, you have no idea, John. Do you know in Scripture there's basically just two cups? Listen. Psalm 11, verse 6. Upon the wicked God will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51, 17. Stand up, O Jerusalem, who have drunk the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury, the cup of trembling. Jeremiah 25, 15, this is the wine cup of fury. Ezekiel 23, this is the cup of drunkenness, sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation. In Revelation 14.10, it's called the cup of his indignation. In 16.19, the cup of the fierceness of his wrath, which is full of abominations and filthiness of form. It is the cup of God's wrath. And it is the cup that we, according to Ephesians chapter 2, have earned. It's the cup that we have a right to drink from. Because we have earned that wrath. Because we stand guilty before God. 
But Isaiah 51 says, Thus says the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. See, I've taken out of your hand that cup, the cup of trembling, the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. How is that going to happen? That's the point. That's the cup that Jesus was willing to drink for you. Let me tell you about the second cup. Psalm 116, verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Jeremiah 16, 7, it's called the cup of consolation. David would say in Psalm 16, 5, You, O God, O Lord, are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. And that same David would say in Psalm 23, 5, Yeah, that cup, my cup runs over. I'd like you to consider the fact that Jesus here is being bound and taken away. But as he's being bound and taken away, he's reminding them of a cup. You see, we don't have a right to drink of the second cup because the first one remains undrunk. The cup of fury, the cup of wrath and horror and desolation that we've rightly earned. And Jesus says, I'll drink that cup for you. And if I drink that cup for you and you let me drink that cup for you, I'll offer you the second cup and you can drink that one. The cup of comfort, consolation, the cup of salvation. The cup of a covenant between you and me. And yet Jesus is being led away, bound, and I think bound. And I think of a person that was threatening, that was bound. I can't help go back to Samson. And you do realize that Samson's greatest victory was in his death. You do know that, right? And so will Jesus's, where he conquers death for good. Have you accepted this gift? this gift of Jesus? Or are you still thinking you're good enough to not have earned that cup? Let's face it, how many crimes do you have to commit before you're a criminal? How many laws do you have to break before you're a lawbreaker? For us to pretend like we haven't broken the law and when we have just makes us delusional, but it doesn't change the law. But our God so loved us, you and me, beloved, that he says, I'll take that cup and I'll drink it myself. And if you're willing to accept Jesus' gift, his payment at the cross, then you're willing to receive the cup he offers you, which is the cup of salvation that says, you and me, Jesus, forever. When we partake now of communion, we partake of that cup, recognizing it's the cup of salvation. That's why we're not to eat or drink of this in an unworthy manner. Because we recognize the reason we could drink the second cup was because Jesus chose to take the first one here. So we're going to pray. And as we pray, I'm going to invite you to say yes to Jesus if you haven't. If you have, praise the Lord and let's celebrate together. And let's partake of this together. Would you pray with me, please? God in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity today to come here and study your word. 
to be able to celebrate a God who would not withhold his love from us even when we've given him every reason not to uh, love us, every reason to want to just punch us into oblivion. But you've so loved us, you sent your only begotten Son into the world to pay for our sins. And I may not understand everything, but I do know this that we'd have to be crazy to say no to that offer. If you're willing to drink the cup of that horror and desolation and wrath, please be my guest. And to offer me that cup of a covenant, that cup of, of consolation, I say yes. So today, please hear Please today, speak to our hearts and challenge us and encourage us. And here in this room, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus or you're not sure if you have, I'd love to just lead you in a prayer right now, right where you're at, where I'm at. You could be confident that you have. Pray this prayer with me right now, would you please? God in heaven, stand before you guilty in my own faults my own failures and I'm just coming to you honestly knowing that that needs to be punished but I believe you've actually already punished my sins my guilt on the shoulders of your son who died on that cross for me and paid for me in full. So I gladly hand over that cup of my of who I am. And I gladly receive the one you offer me, the cup of a covenant between you and me. And I say yes to you. Confessing you Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I say yes to you. Have me now. Make me yours. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.